Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. The fifth Academy Awards, 1931 and 1932. Listeners, and welcome to the Guild of Films podcast. It is I, Christian, and welcome back because this is the beginning, right? Of season three? Four. Four. My God, we got renewed somehow. (laughs) Wow. We got renewed. We got, I don't know, we got canceled by CBS and then thrown onto Paramount. And now we're on QB, what's left of it, I guess. No Paramount Plus. You know, we we show up in the ads when your parents are watching Yellowstone. So, oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, hello, we're back with a brand new season, brand new. uh, I got like a couple new people coming on new movies to talk about. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. It's me, Christian. You've missed me. I know you have. I've missed myself. (laughs) It feels like Um, I had surgery recently. No bueno. But that means I've been watching a lot of movies. So bueno with that and welcome back it's brett hello 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 you can't see us unless he listens to me and puts this on youtube and everything but he looks like he's about to sing some country songs to me (laughs) i don't i'm getting that vibe like throw out the guitar yeah think about it gotta hear they're changing the screen the the strings backstage they'll be out in a second Oh my God. And welcome back because it's been like a full year, but welcome back our old friend, John. Hello, John. Hello. How's everybody doing? And I can back up Christian, but it has sort of a glow around him too right now. It's, it's very, yes. It's very country country video there. All part of the setup. And actually, John, um, like I said, welcome back. But since we last spoke to you here on the episode and everything, we have actually had the chance to meet John in person. It's true. We did. And I got to go up for some authentic, can I call it authentic, Kansas City barbecue? Oh, yes. Yes, it was delicious. But yes, it was fun. So we had a, yeah, a reunion in person. Yeah. So that's like our first, you're our first guest person from not in the state of Kansas to actually come and like see us and everything. I'm so honored. I'm so So honored. I I got to be a fan. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was nice. So welcome back because here you are. And it's been like a full year since you last did an episode with us. It has. It has. Should I take that personally, Christian, that it took a year to have me back? I don't schedule the guest stars. <laughs> I just pay them. You could you could actually blame me. It's it's because the real problem is that Brett takes forever to like watch movies and, and edit episodes. But nice. we're gonna have quite a few coming out here in the next, you know, month. So yeah. I think I shouldn't promise that, but, but yes, we are back. Happy to be back. (laughs) Yeah. We'll edit that out. Um, And yeah, ready to talk about the the fifth Academy Awards. So are we ready to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. Awesome. So yes, fifth Academy Awards, as Christian mentioned, these were the ones that were split between 1931 and 32. Um, I think this is the second time that we've had a split year, second or third. Um, 
as we know, the first however many years of the Academy history, I think the first six years, they, they split it between half of one year and half the next, which makes no logical sense whatsoever, but that's what they decided to do. So 1931, 32, they took place in late 32 in November on November 18th. And here are our winners. Best picture went to grand hotel, which is very significant. It's the only film to win best picture with not a single other nomination. And I know part of that is because there weren't many nominations period during this time, but still that's, that's wild. Um, And the only film until driving this Daisy way forward in 1989 to win without having a best director nomination, which is fascinating because nowadays it's like, that's like, it seems like every four years that's going to happen. Are we, uh, we're up to five now, right? Yes. Yeah. Drive Miss Daisy, Grand Hotel. Argo, Green Argo. Book, and Coda. Coda. Yep. So yeah. Common trend now definitely wasn't common for a long time. Uh, best director that year did go to Frank Borsage for Bad Girl. That was actually his second win um, on his first two nominations, his only nominations. Best Actress went to Helen Hayes for The Sin of Madeline Claudette. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Best Actor, a tie. Frederick March for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Wallace Beery for The Champ. We're going to talk about one of those today. This was the first tie at the Oscars, um, and Beery actually received one less vote than March, as covered, which is weird, but they had this rule at the time that a tie would be a result if the top two were within three votes of each other which is really interesting. I'm a little bit surprised it didn't happen more often, but fascinating. They changed that rule though, because Streisand and Hepburn, they, it was the exact number, but Streisand got invited to the Academy before the voting. So assuming she voted for herself, she won herself for the Oscar. Thank goodness. And that's uh, easy. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I shouldn't assume. I'm a, I, she, she voted for herself. I would... I would be willing to bet. Surely. But yeah, uh, interesting rule. Um, Yeah, they obviously changed it. I'm not sure when that happened, but yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Most wins went to Bad Girl and The Champ, which both received a whopping two wins. Two wins each. They were the leaders. Um, This is the last ceremony today in which no film... I was confusing myself there. Yes. Last ceremony in which no film won more than two Oscars. So uh, most nominations were between Aerosmith and The Champ, both once again with a whopping four nominations each. Uh, This was the first of three Oscars in which two films not nominated for Best Picture received more nominations than the Best Picture winner. Um, That went to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the Guardsman, which both had more nominations than Grand Hotel, but didn't get into the eight film lineup for the big award. Short film categories were introduced for the first time this year. And those obviously became a big deal later on with Disney winning like pretty much every year. Um, And Wallace Beery is still the only actor to appear in a best picture winning film while winning an acting award for a different movie in the same year. Does that sound right? That That's a Wikipedia stat. So <laughs> if Leo had won for Blood Diamond, he could yes. have pulled it off. Yep. He shouldn't have. <laughs> no. Should have won for the departed, personally. Yes. But, 
Frances Marion won her second Oscar for writing The Champ. We talked about her previously winning for The Big House. Um, so that's kind of exciting being a female screenwriter, which is pretty rare even today for that to happen, surprisingly. Um, and four films this year that were only nominated for Best Picture, which never happens nowadays. And this year, it was literally half of the movies only got in for Best Picture, nothing else. So I know about you all, but I think this is like just statistically one of the most interesting Oscar years we've talked about, maybe in Oscar history. I agree. There's so many weird random facts about this that most of which stand up to today. I mean, um, yeah, the Grand Hotel fact lasted for like 60 years and it's still the only one that only won once. And I wonder if it, it inevitably that's going to stand forever, I would assume. I would assume I would, so. Yeah. 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 I mean, honestly, if any film would have approached that, I would think it would have been Coda. Right. But it, it won two other awards. So, <laughs> but it's fascinating. Could you imagine if like Titanic won only like one award? That would yeah. be heavily discussed to this day. Our ship troopers pulls off that visual effects win. Oh Our ship troopers has really good effects though. It does, but like it's Titanic. <laughs> um, yeah, and Disney won the first short film, right? M- Mickey lost, but Disney won because it's Flowers and Trees would have been the first one. Yes. Yep. Didn't the didn't the music box also in like live action? I think so. It was was it. Was it the yes. Laurel and Hardy one? Okay. Yeah, aka like the best thing they've ever made. Oh. I laugh at that. So, okay, look. Honorable mention here already. <sighs> but I laugh at that one so much. Like, I have it recorded. I don't want to get rid of it. Oh, it did. It won. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm adding that to my, for the next episode, I'm adding yeah, that. Right. You've never seen the music box? I've never seen, I've seen Flowers and Trees, but never the music box. <gasps> oh my I I don't care. We have the slap on there. You want me to? Do you want me to like <laughs> record myself watching it for you, Christian? Sure. It's thirty minutes <laughs> of joy. It's thirty minutes of joy. Unsurprising. And you need to watch it too, Mister. I can watch a d- experimental feature. It's experimental. Okay. I'll add it to my list. I like that. Yeah. That that's Brett's nickname. I can watch an experimental feature. I've been on a kick recently. It's a little weird, but all right. Well, uh, yeah. Any other thoughts on the Oscars before we start diving into these eight movies? I have a lot of thoughts on these movies. I do too. Okay. Yeah. I'm They're ready. all brief. <laughs> Mine are yes. all brief. Well, yes. Well, I will go ahead. I actually have our first three here. Um, that I'm going to kick us off with somehow it ended up going that way, but our first film here is uh aerosmith which I stay awake yeah. oh wait wrong people it's funny because christian was texting me about this movie and his phone auto-corrected to aerosmith the band because it smelled spelled differently um so yeah, i had is... hand surgery everybody so i've been talking into the phone so iphone automatically assumes i'm talking about the band as most people probably would, I imagine. I mean, they did sing an Oscar-nominated song that by Diane Warren. That song slaps. It does. You know what doesn't slap? This Aerosmith. Go. 
Yeah, this this Aerosmith, I, I think I would refer to as the Citadel Part Two. Um, That's the movie. I couldn't think of the movie. I literally have that in my notes. <laughs> I actually could not remember the name either i had to go back to like our 1938 outline and say and say you know what was the name of that movie because this was definitely a remake or sequel or whatever or i guess that was um but that was from 1938 so obviously this one came first but it is a medical drama um starring ronald coleman as the lead character uh, martin aerosmith he is a med school student who doesn't want to practice medicine he wants to do like scientific research, especially with bacteria and curing diseases and things like that. Um, he's convinced by his mentor to go and practice for a while. He does that. He meets a nurse um, who's played by Helen Hayes, uh, who won for a different film this year. And they get married. They move out to her family's town in South Dakota. And he starts practicing and he actually becomes a vet somehow in the process. Um, but he hates it. They go back to New York city. He works for his mentor in this big research scientific laboratory. And eventually we see, we hear that the bubonic plague is spreading in the West Indies. And so he's got to be the white savior and go save the West Indies from the bubonic plague. Um, and so he goes out there, he starts developing this vaccine and it becomes, as to be expected, mostly about like medical and scientific ethics. Like, should he approach it like a scientific experiment and have people he gives a vaccine to in a control group, or should he just give the vaccine to everybody hoping that it will work? Um, yeah, much like the Citadel, I thought this one was kind of a drag, um, pretty, it's not a very long movie. Um, I think it's like an hour and 40 minutes, but it definitely felt longer than it was. Um, I will say part of the time, I thought it could have been better than the Citadel simply because I thought the lead character was a little bit more interesting. I thought his motivations were a little bit more clear, but it kind of descends into the same thing. Very dry. The medical ethics are interesting on the surface, but it's surrounded by like very shallow characters, not in depth whatsoever. I was especially disappointed in Helen Hayes and like her character, just because when it first introduces her, I thought she was going to be like a rebel, like, cause she was having to clean the floor because her boss caught her smoking. She's like, yeah, I was smoking a cigarette. My boss caught me. I'm like, Oh, she's going to be kind of like, kind of cool, like kind of a badass rebel. And then immediately like at, at the, you know, snap of the finger, she's a typical housewife character. All of a sudden, completely different person. And that's the way she stays for the rest of the movie. And Aerosmith, you know, once you get his motivations out of the way and you kind of learn who he is, there's not much that's added on to him beyond that. Um, I think the most severe turn it takes is probably where this film has aged the most in that they, you know, decide along the way that, the white people aren't going to let them test on them. So they're going to go test on all the black natives in the West Indies. And, you know, watching that in 2022 hasn't aged well whatsoever. Um, so yeah, not a whole lot here. Um, you know, technically the cinematography I think is fine, but nothing to write home about whatsoever. And it's, it's definitely to me, the most forgettable from this lineup. So same. 
that's my entire thoughts of this. <laughs> Look, okay, so like I literally was like, this is like the movie we watched the last time, which I couldn't remember, which now I know it's the Citadel. Um, there's like, and John probably knows too, there's like a string of movies during this time where it's like, let's talk about a scientist who's saving people's lives and cures, like Louis Pasteur, which I mean, I do like that movie. I think it's a good movie. Brett, we've, we've watched Madame Curie from the 40s, right? Like, why do people care so much about these movies with this theme of, hey, let's save some people? It's not an interesting topic. I mean, cool on you. This isn't a true story. No, this isn't a true story, right? No, no. definitely not. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's about it. I like the stuff about the cows, and I was kind of hoping this would just be a movie about cows and everything, but it didn't end up being that. And then Myrna Loy, like, pops in. Two, which, yeah, I don't think you said anything about that, but she pops in. I wasn't really paying that close attention, but I looked up and I was like, oh, hey, hey, it's you. Right. What are you doing here? <laughs> and then suddenly Helen Hayes is out of the picture and it's like, wait, okay. Mm-hmm. So didn't care for it at all. These aren't, these types of things ain't my bag. The White Savior movies. Yeah, for me, and I I, I was on the episode about the Citadel. So right. I, 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 I'm, 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 not sure how I feel about the go-to for dry medical dramas, but I'll take it. Um, so uh, yeah, I I like this one a little bit better than the Citadel overall. Um, but I, I I don't know that there's like a great go-to medical drama in film. I feel like that's television's thing, and television does that better than pretty much any movie. I, I'm trying to I was trying to think of one where I'd like genuinely love a medical drama film. Um, yeah, and I think the thing that really struck me about this was it's John Ford. It should be better than this. Yeah, right, right. Uh, like, I-, I love John Ford's movies, and it's it just it feels like there's not enough John Ford here. I think part of it for me was Coleman. His accent is feels particularly ridiculous. Um, Christian put Dr. Doolittle in the uh, chat there, and I'm just not having it. Just, <laughs> Which one? All of them. <laughs> um, uh, the, yeah, so Ronald Coleman, though, um, uh, or Rex Harrison, Ronald, both of them have inexplicable accents in way too many movies. Um, and the other, yeah, I did agree with you, Brett. Helen Hayes did not work for me. I was, exp- was really excited when she seemed kind of like she'd be fun. And then she just moves into this um, this role of sort of hard on your sleeve, devoted wife. Um, and I felt like she was too theatrical. And I know Sin of Madeline Claudet is not nominated for this category. And we might get into it um, with the honorable mentions next time. But like, I don't like her in either of these two movies. I feel like she's just, she's too, she doesn't adapt well to early, early 1930s films. I also felt like the Myrna Loy thing even though this is a pre-code film and a lot of the other pre-code films we're going to get to are a bit bodier, a bit, a um, little bit more salacious. It's clear that they're having an affair, right? Coleman and yes. Lloyd's characters, but they don't ever acknowledge that. And yeah, I feel like we needed more. We They needed to um, rip that bandaid off. Yeah. So this is all coming from Wikipedia. So like, again, great assault, but I was, so this is based on a film from Upton Sinclair or a, a, a novel. Sorry, not a film. Um, Sinclair Lewis though, right? Or sorry, Sinclair Lewis. Not Minnesota's Lewis. own Brett. Yeah. Sorry. Sinclair Lewis. Um, the other Sinclair. Um, and I've, 
on Wikipedia, it said that the novel is much more, much more pre-code is the way I would put it. Like the lead character is much more complex. He's a womanizer. It actually like dives into the affair with Myrna Loy's character. And so I think there, there was a much more interesting movie there. It's wild. Like I made it through that whole description without even mentioning John Ford and Myrna Loy, like the two biggest names in this movie, because like you don't feel them there. Like Myrna Loy, her whole subplot feels so like weird and unnecessary because they don't dive into it. And yeah, you're right. I don't see any John Ford here. Like this does not feel like a John Ford movie whatsoever. And I read that he, this was one that he didn't really care about. I think he had like some sort of deal with the studio that he couldn't drink while he was making it. So he's like, I'm going to make this as quick as possible and get it out so I can go have a bottle, Um, which wouldn't surprise me, but yeah, it's it's such an interesting range as a director because I'm obviously just used to him with the, the Westerns and everything, but I mean, between this, which doesn't feel like a John Ford movie at all, um, just like with his staple. And again, that's coming from the Westerns, but then knowing like a few years later, he does the informer, which I really like that movie too. Right. Um, and then something like Mary of Scotland, which I've not seen that, but obviously, you know, Catherine Hepburn, what's up? It's like the range here, but at the same time with this movie, boring. Yeah. He doesn't have the range. <laughs> it's the range before, and then he gets into the Westerns. Um, I have a random question on my notes here from this movie. Did people just actually get engaged on first dates in the 1930s? Or is this just a trope of the movies? Because it seems to happen in every movie from this era. Yeah. Engaged after like two sentences together. Is that just a thing or is that just a fabrication? Should I be expecting more from my Tinder profile is what I'm asking. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I... Because I've always, yeah, of course, like people got married quicker back in the day, but like seriously, first date, like get home and you're proposing, you don't even have the ring yet. I I don't know. That's a great question that I I thought of as as well. But you know, I asked myself in watching this. Well, Toby was there. I asked Toby. I said, people really saw went to the theater 1931 and said, my gosh, that Aerosmith, this Great Depression we're having this movie is taking me out of my own great depression. Like this is what's doing it. This is what's going to save our country. Yeah. I, I, mean, I don't know what the box office was back then. It was about a buck to 5 million. That's probably like a bajillion these days, but still. But this was a hit, like a, like a legitimate mm-hmm. box office hit. Speaking on the, on, good medical dramas i'm only bringing this movie up because i cannot think of any other situation where i could bring it up but there's a a tv movie from 2004 called something the lord made with alan rickman and Steph. i saw it when i was in college i really liked it so if you're looking for a good medical drama you might check it. i don't know that was eight years ago so maybe i've seen that but i really liked it when i first now, saw what are we talking when we say medical dramas are we talking like you actually have to have a doctor present in the film I think so. Yes, yeah, I can't yeah, think of yeah. like a all of the classic films. I just can't think of one that's great. This is a challenge for your listeners. I mean, Morbius yeah. is a doctor. Yes. And, and you know, it's Morbin time. I mean, we haven't it hasn't gotten its best picture nomination yet, though. It still <laughs> needs to wait a few more months before it gets its best picture nomination. Oh, geez. The human centipede. <laughs> 
Does Frankenstein count? I mean, his name is Doctor. That's true. He, I'm guessing he is an MD, probably. Let, let's say primarily a drama. <laughs> I'd say that's more of a horror film first, but fine. True. Good. Then I got nothing. <laughs> well, the Academy certainly liked this one. They did give it four nominations, which my commission was the most on the night. Um, picture, best adaptation, cinematography, and art direction. Speaking of art direction, um, which I'll bring this more later, maybe, but when we were watching Grand Hotel and I, we brought up like, oh, this should have gotten nominated for this art direction or whatever. But there's my little thoughts on that. Art direction is the one that has been around literally since like the beginning of the Oscars. And it's yeah. like kind of consistent because it has here the first, I don't know if it was like labeled art direction, set direction, production design, whatever you want to call it these days. But it's been pretty consistent, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. I think it was interior design in 31, 32 mm. is what the category was called. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it, I mean, there weren't even music categories yet. Right. Right. But like, this is like, this has stood the test of time. This has been here since the beginning. And they just changed the name to production design in what, like 2011? Somewhere so around that. Even yeah. like art direction, the, the category itself, the name and everything lasted a long time. Yeah, because, you know, Avatar, that's real <laughs> production design. That's what gets my, I think it wins my personal award in 2000. Oh, it might, oh, mine too, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember people were up in stuff. arms about that. They were like, really, this? I, I mean, but I think this is a conversation for another day, but I think animated films should be nominated for uh, production design. Oh, I have a couple oh, yeah. that have won before my like, personal Like, name a movie that looks better than Coco. I mean. True true good point all right well are we ready to move on from aerosmith to our next film yeah we don't want to miss any uh thing <laughs> all right well our next like, one you have like back-to-back -back moments you could sing here for this that's true brett go ahead right. and sing <laughs> christian do, do you want to introduce this one just so you can sing i i sure. the I'm next not... <laughs> one that has is bad girl talking about the bad girl perfect um yes it is bad girl which i'll, I'll get to this in a bit but confusing title um it makes no sense for this movie but and, and neither does the poster either but bad girl is directed by frank borsage um it stars sally eilers in the lead role i guess that the titular bad girl even though she's 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 not that bad um but she is a she's a, a model for a department store and she actually models like wedding dresses and bridesmaid dresses things like that and she is she's young she's beautiful and as a result she is kind of prayed after by every man who walks her way and she is very much like she's good at saying nope not gonna do this she always makes up that she has a husband and he's either a prize fighter or a policeman and he will beat your ass if you if he sees you talking to me so pretty much avoids men altogether until she meets i gotta get names here um, her name is dorothy until she meets eddie collins who is played by james dunn yep. um and he is different. He doesn't seem to have much interest in her or in any woman whatsoever. And so she kind of makes it her challenge to get him to fall for her. And as a result, they end up falling for each other. 
as John just mentioned, they go on one date and they get engaged and they get married. Weird trend. Um, but the story is basically trying to be to a degree the story of a a newly married couple dealing with challenges during the great depression in the city um eddie really wants to have this this store selling radios he works at a radio store he wants to have his own that is his dream it's his business and he's saved up for it for months years um but sally gets pregnant and she's afraid to tell him because she doesn't want him to give up the store, but they're going to need a new home. They're going to need the money to take care of the baby. She offers to go back to work herself. And what ensues is a lot of miscommunication. These two really don't know how to be completely honest with each other and what they're feeling. And they assume what the other person is feeling. And so they go back and forth between what kind of life does the other person want to live? Does the other person even want this baby? A big part of it is that Dorothy pretends she doesn't even want the baby because she doesn't think Eddie does because he always has comments about kids. We come to find out that Eddie is really excited about this baby once he finds out that they're going to have a kid. And so it, it goes to the wayside a little bit. Things get really bad. And then I won't really ending, but that's kind of how it goes. So I, I think I feel a little bit differently on this movie than two of you. So let me just say, I think there are some definite flaws here. One, I think the film, like I said, is trying to be a representation of a newly married couple during the Great Depression. And I don't think it's a very great representation of that. It's a little too pristine. It's a little too easy. Um, we're going to get to another film shortly that I think does that, does Depression era much better. Um I also was weirded out by the certain, like the immediate romance type thing. And like I said, the title makes no sense. Like I was expecting something similar to what we're going to talk about with redheaded woman. Probably. Um, it's not that at all. I don't know where bad girl is coming from. However, I have to admit, I really enjoyed this. I kind of fell in love with the characters. I can't explain why, but to me, Sally Eilers dot Dorothy in this movie is so likable. She's a little bit different than Helen Hayes in the other film because although she does become into more of a wife role, I think she still does have these thoughts about what life does she want to live? Does she want to be a mother? Does she want to be just a wife? Does she want to work? Does she want to have fun? Um, and I really just enjoy the performance by Sally Eilers. I think she just has a lot of charisma and it made me really like the character. James Dunn, can be a little bit annoying at times. Um, he has a very distinctive voice that he uses a lot, but I also think that's kind of the point. Um, and by the end of the film, I came to really like him as well. Um, and I got kind of warped in to this thing that they're going through where they cannot communicate with each other effectively and what that leads to and how it eventually gets resolved. I was just very into this couple's relationship and I really wanted them to work out because I thought they were interesting. So technically it has its issues. I don't think it's a perfect film by any means, but I couldn't help but just enjoy myself watching it. Um, and like I said, it is a pre-code film. It's not as you know progressive as some other films we're gonna talk about, 
but there is a lot of that implication of like sex and, and what that's led to and how they, I think there's like, you know, just these thoughts. We see a woman in the hospital who straight up does not want her kid. Like she looks at her kid and she is disgusted by it. And that is something I don't think would fly much with the production code that come later on. So that's my thoughts. Let's hear it. I can go up here. So I, Brett started with the negative and moved into the positive. I'll start with the positive and move into the negative <laughs> here. Uh, my favorite part of this was a supporting character played by Mina Gumbel, the, the yes. Edna character, who yes, I yes. think steals every scene she's in. She's so good at this sort of harried mother role and very funny. Um, and I, she was my favorite part of this, um, the whole movie. But for me, it didn't speak to me. The communication as a plot point is a personal pet peeve of mine in movies when like they've been married for a year, like just talk to each other. Like this mo- this movie, a lot of the problems in this movie could be resolved with like a 20 minute conversation. Um, and so for me, that was, and I like Frank for such, I like a lot of his later stuff like Moonrise. Um, but this one, it just wasn't in my uh, wheelhouse. And for me, it was more of a question of not necessarily if it was good or bad, but how did Oscar notice this? This is the type of film that Oscar five, six years later wouldn't have even noticed. It's the plot is not, it's not the kind of plot you normally would see a, a nom- winning best director for certainly. Yeah. Um, I think the the title being a misnomer is odd. I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's a, it's not, she's not a bad girl. Like even uh, taking out the, the judgmental aspect of it, there's no, there's no, um, there's no social norms that she's really breaking in this film. And I know in the play that it was based on, that's not the case. Um, but, uh, I think my, I want to close with just a question. Did the scene where the boy is like combining milk with a giant <laughs> jug of ink, did people, again, did people in the thirties just have like a quart of ink in their kitchen? Cause that feels like a mistake to have around a four-year-old. More like, did they have a death wish? Yes. Right. <laughs> For real. It was just. It was the biggest jar of ink I've ever seen. That's true. Well, um, I like this movie also. It feels like it's been a while since I saw this, but I don't know. I don't think I have much more to say other than I did like it a lot. I thought that the romance was fine for the time being. This is weird because like the whole last month, I've just been like some sort of weird days where if I watched a movie, I have nothing more to think on it except slap a star rating on it and call it a day. And this one, it I was like, I was very much focused on it. I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was boring by any means. And like the DVD copy I had was really good with the sound because I thought I was going to have all that grainy quality behind it or whatever. But it's a decent film. And it's one that I think, you know, if you're like a film, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? If you're somebody who needs to finish watching all the Best Picture nominees like us, this is definitely one that is going to be enjoyable for the time. And I can attest that in like the Great Depression, because, you know, I was there and <laughs> we're always going through it. Uh, this would have been something to see, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a yeah. rom- everybody loves a romance type movie. It's pretty down to earth, pretty mellow between this and fucking Aerosmith. This one will cure the Great Depression. Yeah, that's my theme of the night. Is this going to cure our Great Depression? <sighs> Yeah. And like I said, I, even though I don't think it's a great representation of like what life was like during the great depression, especially those that were hit the hardest, 
it would be a very different movie if they did that. Like the movie is, I think it's meant to be heartwarming. Um, and so I don't know, maybe that's kind of what has to I do. Mean, audiences so were with you two at the time because apparently they, Dunn and Eilers became sort of the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan of their era. They made five films together after this. Wow. Interesting. And I feel it's weird that like we, we Aerosmith and uh, this movie, Bad Girl, We've got Ronald Coleman, who would win an Oscar like 20 years later, and James Dunn, who would win an Oscar 15 years later. You've got this sort of large gap in their Oscar careers. That is fascinating. I actually do agree with you, John. I, I am surprised this won Best Director and was such a, for this year, a pretty big hit with the Oscars. I mean, it won two awards, which, as we said, was a lot for this year. Um, right it doesn't feel like the type of film even back then that would normally do that. Even thinking about like Borsage and his previous win for seventh heaven, that felt much more like a director's movie. Right. Um, so yeah, it is a little bit odd. And we're, we're going to get to others, but like there are movies that are nominated for best picture that were very much like in the theme of what you'd expect from it. Like the next movie we're going to talk about is very much a best director type winner. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, it's nice that it's a it's an atypical one, but yeah, I, I, I'll take the con on this one. That this one didn't. Uh, I'll be the negative here. <laughs> yeah, well, we are getting into a stretch with with our next our, our upcoming list here of big name directors too. Not that Borsage wasn't. I mean, they're all big name directors, but either one of them could have easily won, and it would have been completely normal. So. Uh, but in addition to winning director and adaptation, of course, this was nominated for Best Picture. And so those were its three noms. So pretty successful with the Oscars. Any final thoughts on Bad Girl? Okay. So now moving on to our third film. Last one I present, I promise. Uh, this one is The Champ. And so I don't know which is more popular between this and the 1979 remake with John Voight. I've never seen the remake. Um, this is the only one I've seen. This is actually the only one from this list of nominees that I had seen before preparing for this episode. So second time watch for me. Um, it is a story of uh, Andy Champ Purcell. He goes by Champ, who's played by Wallace Beery, Oscar winning role. And he is a down on his luck um, somewhat former boxer trying to reclaim his former glory. He was like a world champion at the time. Very good. While at the same time, trying to care for his young son, Dink, who is played by Jackie Cooper. Uh, Dink is a very charismatic kid who has basically learned to take care of his father, even more than his father has learned to take care of him. Um, Champ is constantly drunk he is always gambling, any gambling away any money they have, typically losing after he wins big, um, going too far with it. But there is a definite bond between them. You can tell that Champ truly loves Dink dearly, and Dink truly loves Champ. Um, like, as much as I can imagine a kid loving their dad. Um, Dink thinks he is going to return to his former glory. He has faith in him. He thinks they're going to find their way out. This is very much depression era. They are living in a, like a one room shack. It's very dirty. They are very dirty and they just can't seem to win. 
Um, it actually takes place in Tijuana, Mexico. I'm not exactly sure why that is. That's my one big flaw with the movie is that like it's all white characters um, in Tijuana, Mexico. So you know what they say about Tijuana. <laughs> I, I don't know what the deal is about that, but that that's my one big flaw with the movie. I don't know what that's all about. Um, but Champ buys Dink a horse with some gambling money he wins. Apparently horses were fairly cheap back then, back there. Um, and they take it to the races. They're going to try to win money. And there, Dink and Champ catch up with Linda, who happens to be Dink's mother, um, who is now married to Tony. They're played by Irene Rich and um, Hale Hamilton. And they are very well off, very rich. And they would like to become more parents to Dink. Um, Champ mentioned that he won custody of Dink. We're not really sure how, but there was a sense that when Dink was very, very young, he kept him and the mother took off. Um, so a lot of it is about the conflict that brings into play and basically Champ trying to find a way to make things right for his son and, like I said, reclaim his former glory. Um, I love this movie. I adore it. Granted, I Christian, would you say this is a Brett film? Uh... This is also a Christian film okay. as well. But yes, it is a Brett film. Yeah, I mean, it's about it's like... Inspi- uplifting, inspiring sports drama. <laughs> yeah, I, and not really inspiring, I would say. I this better not end up on the 100 Cheers list on AFI. Um, but um, it is, it's about a, a very complicated guy who is a boxer. I love my boxing movies. Um, but it is, it, it's different just because it is set during the depression. The boxing scenes are very different. It's very kind of grotesque in a way. Um, and the movie is, I think it's just very kind of gritty and down to earth. Um, it does feel like a depression era movie, not the one that people are going to go see to be uplifted like they would with bad girl, but more one that's a little bit more honest. Um, and I really love the relationship between Dink and Champ. It is so complicated. There are so many issues with it, but you can't help but love seeing them together um, when they are having fun. It is very, very sad. There, There's a scene in the movie that is among, to me, one of the saddest scenes I've ever seen. And it's when Dink is in the jail and Champ is pretending to be done with him because he knows that, he would be better off going and living with his rich mom and her husband. And he says, I don't want you anymore. Go. And Dink is understandably losing it, teary-eyed, complaining. Um, and yeah, I and I will say, Wallace Beery, I understand the Oscar win for this. I don't have an issue with it yet. I haven't seen anything except for I would actually give it to Jackie Cooper over Wallace Beery in this movie. I think Jackie Cooper is a star of the show. One of the great child performances. Christian, take it away. Oh, hold up. Wait a minute. Mark, the, however many episodes we've done of this, mark it down that Brett has loved a performance by a child and said, I think the child should have won over the adult. You'll never hear it again. Holy shit. This is my about Schmidt moment. You'll hear it in 2011 with Serena Farhadi. I don't know if you'll hear it other than that, but. Oh, yes. okay. Well, yep. for right now, I'm savoring the moment, but I also would agree. 
Yeah. Once every 70 years. Yep, exactly. No, yeah, I, I, I admit it. I'm usually the one who's a little bit more critical of child performances, but Jackie Cooper hits every emotion that you need from him with his voice and with his face and his tears. And it's phenomenal. Like he is truly amazing in this movie. Jacob Tremblay, I'm sorry I tried. We'll try and get him again, buddy. According to Google, by the way, the champ was nominated for the AFI's 100 Cheers. That's insane. That is ridiculous. You know what? It's it's uplifting, inspiring because it's about a father and how much he loves his son. That That's fair. Okay, that's take fair. it like that. Don't think that's it fair. like, oh, he's a good boxer at the end there trying the best. It's how much he's committed to his son. And, you know, even telling him, like, I don't want you no more. You see how much pain he has in saying that. Yes, yes. Because he doesn't mean it, but it's like, this is the only other way to do this. I guess I'll speak. Okay. I like, I love, what am I saying? I like this. I love this movie, evidently. Um, Because I bumped up my star rating and Brett noticed. And I'm like, okay. But no, this is, I think this is an uplifting movie in terms of like that father and son relationship and everything. Wallace Beery is very good in this. Jackie Cooper, like this time around, I did notice like, holy shit, this kid is, this kid is it. This kid has this. Um, but the film itself is, I think it's incredible. Um, I, fun fact, I'm just finding out, I've seen this like three times. I never knew it took place at Tijuana. I mean, the amount of white people in this movie, yeah. never would have guessed. Never would have guessed it takes place in Tijuana. But um, no, pretty much everything that Brett has said. This is this is a sad movie. Um, this is what I don't even want to spoil it. I mean, when you say sad, you're already hearing that he want, he has to give this kid away because you know he really can't take care of him anymore. He has such downhill luck troubles and everything. I mean, then his mother comes around and she's all rich and powerful now and everything and has this life that this kid really deserves. You know, not to be scrounging around anymore. But not much more to say about it, except it's one to definitely see. Oh, and look, it was shown. Oh, look, it was shown in February of 2020 at the Berlin International Film Festival again. So see, it's a prolific movie. And it's, you know what, this one actually, well, other than Grand Hotel, it's this one that I see frequently also on TCM a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I see this one quite often because that's how I watched it because I recorded it from like a couple of months ago. Yeah. And yeah, so the champ so this might be a Brett movie or a christian movie but this is not necessarily a john movie but i did like it um for the record i'm not going to be the contrarian here uh i am not a sports film person as a rule but i really enjoyed this for me the script was the biggest winner um obviously beery and um, cooper are really good and i will third the the endorsement of cooper over beery but i both they're both good um, but for me, Francis Marion's script, it's so layered. Uh, th- this conversation about not just the complicated relationship between Beery and Beery's character and his son, but I-, I think just this how you can't quite tell from scene to scene whether it's more important that his his relationship with his son is obviously important, but he has this amount of pride that is frequently overriding his decisions. And you don't see that, especially in a movie from the 30s, where you have a genuinely good character who's making bad decisions that make sense. They're not there for the plot. It just, it makes sense that he's like, I want to be back. I was the best of the best. I want to experience that high again. And he, it's been so long. He just, it's, I thought that that was a really interesting conversation. And you throw in 
his um, issues with addiction. It's just, it's a really complicated screenplay in a story that didn't need to have that. You could have, this could have been really compelling just having um, this conversation where it's just a story about a boxer trying to make a comeback. But I think there's a lot of really depth in her screenplay and I'm glad um, that she won the Oscar for that. Um, for me, the ending is really where it's a knockout. Like the ending is so good. Um, I loved it. Um, and I, I think for me, the, the funniest part of this movie was the juxtaposition of Linda's character. She is attracted to Wallace Beery and Hale Hamilton. <laughs> and like those characters could not be more similar, dissimilar if you tried. Like, what is her that's type? I was, that's what I was thinking. Cause it's like, what, I mean, again, they're in Tijuana. You know, what happens in Tijuana stays in Tijuana because this woman saw Walter Beery or Wallace Beery from across the, you know, the Tijuana bar and was like, hey, baby. And out comes a little kid. Right. It's just, it's, it's fascinating. Like, the, 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 obviously they don't comment on it, but it's just a strange yeah. situation where she's doing both. Why do you think that Cooper didn't get nominated for this? He'd been nominated the year before. Like there, there was appetite. Like he could have, that could have been another record that we had under here. The youngest person to two nominations. I mean, possibly, I don't know if they would have thought this back then because they already nominated him once for Skippy, right? For Skippy the year before. Yeah. And so like, um, but maybe it's like, we already did it. We did it once. That's it. You know, congrats. I mean, they repeated Francis Marion and Frank Borsage. They could have, yeah. Jackie Cooper could have gotten one here. How do you think, what if it would have been that situation where if he was nominated against like Wallace Beery, Wallace Beery had been like, I'm nominated against a kid. That's, I mean, um, that's fair. And then I don't know if he, I don't know if he had an ego or whatever. And then assuming Jackie Cooper wins, Wallace Beery is like, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, the youngest person to hit to, Oscar nominations was Angela Lansbury, who did eventually lose to a kid. <laughs> Some fourth dimensional chess there. Also, I want to point out that this is like, is this the beginning of the boxing trend at Oscars too? I think this Probably. is the first boxing film to be nominated. Because that's, yeah, because Toby and I were talking about that, that it's like boxing movies that make the most lasting impact with voters and with viewers, because obviously you have this, you have Raging Bull, you have, of course, Rocky, and then you have just as of recently, like Million Dollar Baby, mm -hmm. you know, um, Creed got a nomination for Stallone, again, playing Rocky, an iconic character. But it's like, it's again, with that uplifting, inspiring things, because you I always picture boxers as like, you know, they're the down on their luck underdogs of the world. I mean, even on the waterfront is about a boxer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I could have had class. Oh, Brett does it better than I do. He had class. <laughs> no, uh, you even uh, you could technically say you had another good boxing movie in 1931 with City Lights too. So, oh, which true. I obviously, didn't get nominated, but is the, it's not. It would have been the year. It would have been the year before. Oh, well, yeah, because we would have been talking about. Yes, yes, absolutely. But no, yeah, I agree. I Francis Marion, um, just terrific script here and. Obviously, King Vidor, I, I know we've talked about him before. And like you said, it's kind of surprising, you know, something like this, which does feel more director heavy. They wouldn't go more towards it. Um, still yeah, looking the, for, still looking for the crowd on a Blu-ray. Right. Criterion, the, Paging Criterion. Yes. The Jackie Cooper point is interesting, though. I don't know. I mean, part of it is obviously probably because 
only three people got nominated for best actor at this time, but I don't know if it was like, if part of it was like, Hey, Wallace Beery is in two movies that we love this year. So let's throw him a bone for doing that. But I don't know. It's interesting. Wasn't his career like revitalized after men and bill also. Wouldn't it? The big house would have been around this time too. Yep. Two years before. Brett, you said you hadn't seen the remake. Christian, have you seen the one with John Voight? No, but I looked and like Faye Dunaway's in it, so sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear though, okay, so the only thing that I know of the remake is it was listed somewhere as like the most saddest film ever. I've seen that too. Yeah. Yeah. Really? I can't remember where. Um, my the dog, dog agreed. She agrees the dog with agreed. that. She's seen it. Um. I've seen that too. I don't know where, but I, I've seen like saddest film and like saddest scene too. So it was nominated for one Oscar for best original score. So yeah, so the champ obviously got those two wins, actor for Beery and original story for Francis Marion. It was also nominated for best picture and best director. So probably one of those that was near runner-up status, um, if not the runner-up. So all right. Any further thoughts on the champ? All right. Now I'm going to get to take a break and John gets to introduce our next film. John, take us away. So our fourth film um, is Five Star Final, which is directed by Mervyn Leroy and produced by Warner Brothers. Um, and it's the story of Joseph Randall, who is played by Edward G. Robinson in the movie, who has been trying to fix a tabloid newspaper and turn it into a legitimate operation. He gets heavy pressure from his boss to mark the anniversary of a 20-year-old murder where a woman named Nancy Voorhees shot her boss but was acquitted when the jury found out that she was pregnant and he wouldn't marry her. Uh, We soon learn that Nancy is still alive, living respectively under a different name, and her daughter is about to be married, the ceremony of which will surely be canceled if her scandal is revealed to the public. Uh, By accident and through a really vicious reporter dressed as a clergyman played by Boris Karloff, Uh, She and her husband, Nancy and her husband, reveal um, Nancy's true identity, setting in motion a standoff between Randall's conscience and what he'll do to increase circulation, potentially at the expense of these people's lives. Uh, For me, I think the thing that stood out first for me was that this movie is way darker than I anticipated it would be. Um, And very much a pre-code film, both in terms of its frank sexuality there's a casting couch joke really early in the film, as well as a lot of comments about Ona Munson's physique. Um, as, um, but for me, it only kind of worked. I, I love the commentary about tabloid journalism and the responsibility of not just telling the truth, but telling the news, um, which is a lesson that every era and particularly our current one could learn. Um, but I think there are large swaths of the film that feel sympathetic, but not particularly well acted. I think Frances Starr's performance as Nancy is kind of overbaked, even if you feel genuinely awful for her character. I also felt like Edward G. Robinson was missing for way too much of this movie, especially to make some of the later scenes work. Um, I, I know I, I, we're all fans of Robinson as an actor, but um, it felt like he they were relying on his star power more than his acting talent in this particular film to me. Um, I like this film. I think I liked it a little bit more than both of you. 
just by a little bit. But I I think I really got into it the most in the second half of this film. Once like the Boris Karloff character does his thing and then leaves. And then there's the really great scene of the like the, the try split screen which that kind of blew my mind. Toby was like, I wonder how they did this because I don't know, it's something that you don't think about like a split screen three different ways in this time frame. It's a great scene in and of itself because it's like, it's very unnerving too because you're wondering, is she going to get through to anybody? Is anybody going to listen to her? I was like, girl, hang up. Say your fake name. Say your, who's the president this time? Who cares? Say your Herbert fucking Hoover. They'll answer. It is Hoover. Um, is it? Look at it me. Is. Look at me. Um, but no, it was, I thought it was a good movie. I honestly going into this and with the whole newspaper thing of like his girl Friday, I thought this was going to be a comedy. I kid you not. I was like, Oh, Edward G. Robinson. I know he has some of the range. He can be dramatic. He can be obviously the gangster. Why not see a comedy? And this is not a comedy at all. There's like no funny bits in this. This is not a laughing matter. It's a moral dilemma situation as we've said, but I liked it. Um, in my own regards, I think. I think, like I said, I like the second half the best, though. Um, that's the really troublesome conundrum of, like, what the hell did I just do? What do we do now to make ourselves not seem just like, you know, cheap news and everything? So, yeah. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything. I Yeah, I'm glad you brought the the kind of, you know, split screen three different ways. That was really cool. Uh, Cause it all happens during like multiple phone calls and there's so many ways that that could have like not made sense. And it does. And it is the most like thrilling part of the movie. Just to think about, Oh, I wonder how they did this. And it, it's just kind of, it, it works really nicely. Um, the other point I really agree with is that not enough Edward G Robinson. I, it's so weird just thinking back. Cause I'm like, He's definitely the lead character and it, it's about him, but it sometimes it feels like it's not about him and his, you know, his struggle with this paper, um, especially in, in parts of the middle portion. He obviously has his big scene at the end where he makes it clear how he feels little more leading into that definitely would have helped um, because I, I think with what he's given, it's a good performance, but it could have been a lot better uh, with more material. Um I- I, oh, really quick here. Um, I, I, okay, let me say this really quick before I lose it and whatever. There's a little bit of innuendo, like at the beginning of this, when um, the blonde comes in for an interview and she's talking to the secretary and there's something about like, oh, they say I'm good in Chicago or something. And the secretary's like, I'm sure you are. Looking like a deep, just like deadpan. Anyway, innuendo is great during this time, folks. Yeah. And some of them are like really like explicit. Like I remember like what the other lady like makes the mention of her breasts and shows like her hand. And yeah, it's, it's some, sometimes I forget just how much more progressive these pre-code films were. And it just makes me think about like, Oh, what if the production code never happened? Um, that would have been interesting to see film history differently, but um, yeah, I, I really like the commentary, like you mentioned, John. I, I really like the idea of just like looking at how the news randomly with no reason whatsoever focused on this woman and decided to make her life hell, you know, without much thought. Cause obviously she, you know, she was part of her. She, she was committed to murder like 20 years ago, but we really don't hear what the circumstances were around that. You know, was it self-defense, what it might've been. 
and they just kind of go in on her and ruin her life randomly. Um, and that's something that's really, even still today, very topical. Um, I mean, we, you know, we just watched, you know, all the, the stuff about Britney Spears in the last year plus. And like, I was thinking about that as I was watching this movie. Um, but so it, it had the makings to be something great just with that concept, but it feels like the really good moments are few and far between. They're spread out. Um, and the stuff in between is kind of fluff. Um, I still like the movie. Another thing that kind of bothered me is like the big, I don't want to reveal it, but the scene where everything really goes to hell felt a little forced to me um, and very quick. And it felt like they were trying to throw something in that was like super dramatic so that we really understand the stakes. I don't know if that was necessary to understand the stakes. Maybe we're watching it differently being in 2022 and seeing this happen so often, but there's an event that happens in this movie that like shocked me and not necessarily a good way because it felt just very thrown in. Um, so, and I, I would try not to harp on it too much, but it is a major, major plot point of the movie. So didn't totally work, but still good. Yeah, I agree. I don't want to share what it is, but like it, that felt more than you needed. Like you already were, you already understood what was happening to all of the players and who was going to make it out of this unscathed and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. And you didn't need to underline that. Yeah. Christian, do you want to go over this film's whopping nomination hall? Sure. Why not? What? Why not John? I mean, it, it, it Oh, is... sorry. Sorry. I, I'm I sorry. I forgot. I'm it sorry. got one nomination, one nomination for best picture. That is it. Um, yeah. Uh, one of about a half dozen mo- or about a dozen movies that have pulled that off. And most of them were from this year. I, I have a couple notes here before we move on from it. Just a couple observations from the film. Um, one was, can you imagine being at the Warner publicity department for this movie with a largely unknown cast and suddenly little Caesar comes out and Frankenstein comes out and you go from having no big names to two legends in your cast. Cause like all of yeah. that was like within about a 14, 15 month period, those three movies. Um, yeah, and then yeah. it's. Sounds like William Randolph Hearst. This is one of several movies that William Randolph Hearst tried to destroy because it was about him. So I think the real question here uh, is when are we going to get a man? Oh my God, shut up. Up. shut up. <laughs> I'm cutting yes. you all. Cut the cameras. Oh my, I thought you were going to bring us something serious. I mean, that is serious. It's always serious when we talk about Mank. You tricked me. <laughs> This is John and I's like running thing now. <laughs> One day I'm going to, I'm going to, it's Criterion's going to release a copy of it and it's going to yeah. be, uh, I will be mailing a copy to Christian the second they announce it. And I I'm going to have so it. much fun. I will accept it and I will throw it into the shelf. <laughs> I'm going to have gonna- so much fun watching our group chat when that happens. <laughs> oh. Those notes here. Yeah. Perfect. Any final thoughts on five star final? All right. Well, I apologize. I was looking at the next film when I mentioned you, Christian, for some reason. So go ahead and introduce that movie. Okay. Well, I wanted to introduce just one of the Ernst Lubitsch films, but I got thrown both of them. (laughs) Thankfully, the first one is the one I enjoyed and the one I paid attention to the most. 
because it's the one I liked the most. And it is One Hour With You. And it is directed by Ernst Lubitsch, who we've spoken about before with The Love Parade. It's reuniting him and Marie Chevalier with, this time, the assistance of George Cukor. There you go. So the film, I'm just going to read the brief Wikipedia plot here. Okay. Parisian doctor, Andre Bertier is faithful to his loving wife, Colette, who's Jeanette McDonald, also in The Love Parade. Much to the surprise of his lovely female patients. But when Colette's best friend, Mitzi Olivier, these are all French names, uh, Genevieve Tobin insists upon being treated by Dr. Bertier, his devotion is put to the test. Um, This movie is sexy. Like, I was actually pretty surprised that this opens up pretty much with a bedroom scene where he comes out and he's talking about like, you know, ha ha ha, here I am. Things are happening in this bedroom. What have you. Marie Chevalier can turn you on with his voice alone. Okay, whatever. But... Again, this is the one of the two Lubitsch films that I really enjoyed the most. And I think that it is because of all the sexual innuendo and connotations in this thing. I mean, it is about like, hey, should I have an affair with my wife's friend? Does my wife care? Is she doing her own thing over here? Like, I'm a horny French doctor. That's kind of what my whole shtick is. We French people, ho ho hoing all day long. What have you. Um, but it's also a musical because these are, we're talking about like the Ernst Lubitsch early musicals. I think that the songs in this are pretty catchy. Of course. I mean, the last one we watched was pretty catchy songs too, but the real big selling point for me is just like the charisma of Marie Chevalier in this. I mean, like I said, he is just so charming in this. It's a funny movie too. Um, anytime he speaks to the camera is like, I love that. Because you don't get the whole lot of like breaking the fourth wall situations. And in this, you get most of it through the movie. But uh, yeah, so that is one hour with you. And this is also based on a play, I guess, called Only a Dream from 1909. So, you know, sexy. Heaven forbid we get an original screenplay option for one of these. Oh, Lord. Right. Poor Brett. (laughs) I'm going to struggle. I'm going to struggle. I'm the one who normally is like, I have all five. <laughs> Do you want me to go, Brett? Yeah, go for it. All right. I, um, so I didn't know we were going to watch two Lubitsch films starring Marie Chevalier um, for this. I didn't realize that even looking at this. Um, and I didn't know I liked Marie Chevalier until this movie. Um, so this was a learning moment for me. I thought this was very good. Um, I didn't necessarily think it needed to be a musical personally, um, which is not a sentence I usually say. Um, it is, to Christian's point, very pre-code, uh, to the point of being a little raunchy almost in some scenes. Um, I think um, all of the films that we're seeing today sort of take advantage of the permissiveness of that era, but none of them take advantage of it to quite this. There are so many double entendres throughout this. It's also really quotable. Um, my favorite joke was when Roland Young is introducing himself. He is Jean-Vierre Tobin's uh, sort of husband who's oblivious to the fact that his wife is in love with Marie Chevalier, or at least in lust in with him. And he's like, Professor Olivier, ancient history. And uh, I, I don't know. That was, I cackled, laughed for quite a while after that. Um, the only thing for me that I objected to was the ending didn't quite work for me, but overall, I loved this. I thought it was really funny. 
Um, it was, yeah, it's a great time. And I think if you're watching it for the first time, like I was, you're going to be surprised at how um, lewd it is. Yeah, like I said, I really like the opening where it opens up where he's talking to you and he's literally telling you like, you know what's happening behind me. Like my wife's in, my wife, she's in there. You know, the, I mean, the opening is so good because everything is rhyming except for the slogan, which yeah. just feels like it was pulled out of a marketing meeting where everything made sense except for what you ended up with. Right. But like I said, them friends, they ho, ho, ho. And now Brett. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I enjoyed this too. I don't know if I enjoyed it quite as much as the two of you did, but I do have to agree with a lot of what you had to say. I, yeah, the, the best thing about this movie is how pre-coded it is. I mean, yeah, totally agree with all that. The, what I said about, um, you know, five-star final about how it would be interesting. You know, I wish I could see a, a Hollywood world where the production code never existed. This is the film that truly made me think of that because I was like, they're really like, they're doing this. They are like, they're not saying the word sex, but it's so obvious that that's what they're talking about. And like, you know, there, there's no way to take it any other way. Um, it's one of those things where like, I knew pre-code films could be surprising in that way, but this was different. This was like really up there. And it is kind of fun because it is a comedy too, a, you know, a comedy and a musical. Um, so it's not one of those, you know, pre-code films, like a gangster film where the protagonist is awful and dies at the end. It's, it's a different form of pre-code. So that's, that's really cool. I think that's definitely the best aspect of the movie. Um, I also wasn't big on the ending, but I'm also like, I, the plot, the way it goes to me, it's like, it's kind of hard to imagine a perfect ending for this movie. Because uh, I was just kind of watching and like things were really kind of heating up. And I'm like, I looked at how much was left. I'm like, how are they going to resolve this in 10 minutes? Um, so maybe it just needed to be a little bit longer, honestly. But yeah, I the, the resolution just wasn't very satisfying, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, Marie Chevalier, I don't, I'm not not a fan, but I'm not a big fan. So, but I do think he is, he's fine here. Um, it's not one that I would consider for like a, a nomination per se, but I, I do think he has his moments and he's funny. Uh, but Genevieve Tobin is the star of the show. Uh, she's terrific. Her character is fascinating and she just kind of lights up the screen and steals every scene that she's in, which is a lot of them. So it's kind of nice. I also like was kind of surprised by the Roland Young character. Uh, the professor Olivier, because he has that big scene of his where he comes up near the end and he's like quizzing Chevalier to find out, you know, or, or get him to admit that he might've done something with his wife. And it was really funny because like Maurice Chevalier is the lead character and the protagonist here. But I was also like, yeah, get him professor Olivier, like get it out of him, make him squeal. And it was just kind of funny. I think it's a good performance because he's so like kind of slimy, but you're also like, I get it. Um, so yeah, I don't know why I, there's not a whole lot of things like explicitly I can turn to that, you know, make me not put it like super high on my list. Maybe I think it's, it's, it's so much that like, I enjoy the concept of it being so pre-code 
more than I absolutely just love the movie itself and the plot. Um, but it is still, yeah, it's definitely one that I recommend. It, it is fun. Um, and yeah, it's still a good time. Well, if you don't like Marie Chevalier in this, wait till we watch Gigi. Yeah, that'll probably be rough. I think I, every, every time we talk about him, which has only been the two times I bring up that damn movie. I mean, it's the, it's the, I kept picturing Gigi every time he spoke and it threw me off because he's 30 years younger here. And it's like, it just doesn't feel right. Because that's the only, really, I, I'd seen, I'd only seen like late stage Chevalier. I've never seen, I've never seen the Love Parade. You've never seen the Love Parade? I have not. It was the only, uh, one of the nominees from that year I hadn't seen. It's harder to find than you'd think. I interlibrary loaned and they gave me the Ernst Lubitsch musical collection. Oh, I can't remember where I watched it. Yeah. Saint Caron for little girls. Jeanette McDonald, I feel like to um to your point, Brett, is like one of those actors that was kind of ruined for me in the sense of what the Hayes Code did. Because I have never been compelled by a Jeanette McDonald performance. She can sing, she's a great singer, but I've never been compelled by an acting performance from her until I saw this movie. And I was like, oh, she's good. I get why people liked her. Um, but every other, like all of her stuff with Nelson Eddy and like acting off of Nelson Eddy is like acting off of a, a brick. But um, but for, yeah, I, I was just like, she's great in this. And I, yeah. I didn't know that she had that in her. Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like that's another credit I get the movie because I feel like a lot of movies like this, the wife would be the character who's more like typical societal expectations, like very proper, stays at home. And then, you know, the Genevieve Tobin character is the way she is. But like, they're both trying to be sexy in this movie. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of cool to see a film do that where like they're very similar in that way. And that the differences are, you got to dig a little bit deeper to get there, so... Shall I read its Oscar nominations? Go for it. All right. So it was, get my glasses. Picture. There you go. Another single nomination movie. And two more to go. All right. Well, any final thoughts on one hour with you before our next one? It's steamy. It is. All right, John, take us away. All right, so our next film is Shanghai Express, directed by Josef von Sternberg and produced by Paramount. Uh, the movie is about a train full of passengers who are headed to Shanghai, and our central character is Captain Donald Harvey, who is quickly nicknamed Doc and is played by Clive Brook. Uh, who um, uh, Doc realizes when he gets on the ship that he is traveling with the famous Shanghai Lily, a noted woman who lives by her wits, to quote the movie. Uh, <laughs> but we realize that Lily is Madeline, who is played by Marlena Dietrich, um, who was once the great love of Doc's life and whom he has not seen in five years since they broke up. Uh, the ship's other passengers include Hu Fei, who is played by Anna Mae Wong, who is a friend of Lily's, and Henry Chang, who's played by... Warner Oland, whom we learn as the film progresses, uh, has some, I, I don't want to get to, can I, can I spoil this little moment here? Uh, spoiler alert. 
um, he's the bad guy uh, and working for the rebels. It's too integral. It happens early in the movie. You're covered. Um, this sets in motion a dangerous game of interrogation as Doc is being held hostage and Lily is trying to save him while also trying to understand if their romance should truly be rekindled or not. Um, I was enthralled. I thought this this movie was so beautiful. The cinematography in it is just kind of unreal. Um, and it, the features actresses, like both actresses are so glamorous, so good. Um, it Honestly, you won't care that the plot doesn't really make any sense. Um, Marlena Dietrichs is sensational as Shanghai Lily on board a train, uh, the damned across a war torn China. This was my um, first foray into the Dietrich von Sternberg uh, collaborations, and I feel like it was a good way to start. Um, I didn't love the ending. Um, I wanted something a little bit more elevated in the ending, but there's too much to love to really complain. Um, Dietrich, Anime Wong, both excellent, and the cinematography, I've honestly never wanted to take up smoking more. I feel that. Yeah. The cinematography is outstanding, especially like the shots when they're outside and they're looking on the train and you've got the, you know, loading the coal and whatnot. It's just gorgeous. It's yeah. It reminded me of like, stuff like a te- decade before Greg Tolan. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the cinematography is great. Um, yeah. And Dietrich and anime Wong are also really great here as well. They're definitely the two shining stars of the cast for me. Um, Obviously, Warner Oland has a, a troubling history, um, you know, with playing, you know, Chinese characters and all the Chan movies and whatnot. So that's something you kind of have to deal with here. But um, the cast itself, it, it's an interesting collection. Um, I was also pretty, like, drawn into this movie while I was watching it. Um, and I think, like, it's very, I would expect, I would not expect a, a movie with a plot like this to be quite as toned down as it is. And on one hand, I appreciate it for that. On the other, when I think back on it, my recollection is not as strong as I felt when I was actually watching it. I'm interested to see how this movie ages for me because like when I was getting, you know, finishing up movies the other day, I realized that I had watched this like three days ago and it felt like it had been at least a week. Um, so I just, I don't know. I'm always going to like it. I just don't know how much, you know, how much I'm going to like it as time goes on, but I don't know what that says, but you know, the viewing experience itself, I enjoyed. Um, and it was kind of, you know, low key thrilling in a way, maybe part of that's just because, you know, as great as Dietrich and anime Wong are, um, the, you know, the, the lead male character is so boring. Um, you know, he's just kind of like a typical stand in white guy who was in military service and there's nothing more to him. Um, obviously Dietrich and anime Wong make up for that because they're so good. That's what keeps the film good, but could have been great if he was a little more interesting. So yeah, I guess that's where I go with it. I think I similarly where I like, I like this but I don't love it. I think the first time that I saw it a few years ago, I really loved it. And then rewatching it, I thought to myself, I don't remember anything about this except for Marlena Dietrich and Anime Wong. And even then I couldn't tell you any of the major plot points, any of their characterizations or anything. I mean, this is just a really nice movie to look at, but even now with you both giving plot details and everything, 
it's a movie that it doesn't totally stick with me except for the look of it the look and the feel of everything that's going on um but similar to the i mean the man playing an asian type character and reading his background where he claimed i guess that he was part of like mongolian ancestry but he was swedish or something yeah i don't know right but I don't know. I, I do like this movie a lot, though. And again, it's purely on the looks of it. Will I ever go back to it? Possibly. Based on that alone, I mean, I like Marlena Dietrich a lot in this. She's a eye candy to look at. And all I thought about when she first entered is Madeline Kahn and Blazing Saddles. <laughs> you know? Nice. Are we all kind of in agreement? Like, the cinematography Oscar, like, this, there was no competition. Not from what I've seen. No, this is definitely the winner. Um, and we keep mentioning lots of stars, but let's not forget the true star of this film, Waffles the Dog. Yes. <laughs> Waffles the Dog. You can find him on Instagram. Wait, for real? <laughs> no, there is a dog named Waffles <laughs> that I follow on there. I think Wa- I Waffles it. the Dog better have a letterbox page. I- I'm going to be checking right? that out. You know he's pro. <laughs> I and, fell for uh, her when they took the dog away. I'd be like, yeah, I'd be sad too. Like, don't take my dog away and put him back with the, the luggage. Come on now. It's just a little true. dog. Um, Anime Wong is going to be on the quarter this year too. I knew that. Yes, she's one really? of the... She's be on the quarter. That's cool. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. Nope. I found that out the other day, actually. Nice. That's cool. Let me on the lookout for that. Well, this was one that got a little bit more than picture. So, John, do you want to go over what it was? I will. I I, I don't have a only best picture nominee here. Uh, So it was nominated for three um, three Oscars. Um, As mentioned, it won Best Cinematography, very deservedly. Um, It was also nominated for Best Picture and for Best Director. Um, And so, yeah, three nominations. It's rolling in it. Yeah. Once again, it feels like a director's movie feels very heavily directed so yeah and obviously from a legend so all right well any further thoughts on shanghai express all right christian back to you with our other musical oh great okay again when i volunteered i said one of the ernst lubitsch movies and i got both of them because brett's like he likes musicals why not i must have read it as at least one so. At least one. Okay, <laughs> well, you're going to get the glorified Wikipedia synopsis of this. Okay, and I was sure we were about to get the story of when Blanche Devereaux dated a retired military <laughs> officer. There may be a Golden Girls reference coming up with the last one. <laughs> okay, but no, but that would have been good. Damn it. No, because you know what? I'm saving that for from here to eternity because that episode is called from here to the pharmacy. Oh, and thank you. Anyway. So this is Ernst Lubitsch other film that was nominated for the year. And it is a smiling Lieutenant starring once more, Brett's favorite actor of all time, Marie Chevalier, uh, an actor in which Brett called just a little too French. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the new running gag that is gonna like get me canceled someday <laughs> no i didn't actually say that <laughs> my friend robin who lives in Lyon, it will be listening to this and i would just like to put a plug in for him here <laughs> hello 
Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> Good day. How was your... Fa- okay, that's another podcast. Um, okay, glorified Wikipedia entry here because I... Okay, let me just start out with this. This one was harder for me to watch because it didn't start out with like, you know, the sexiness of the other one. I really didn't get into it. With these older, super older films, I have to like, I have to be sucked in in the first five minutes, okay? And for an Ernst Lubitsch musical, I wasn't, which I was surprised myself, okay? So we have in Vienna, Austria. Is it Austria at the time? I See, okay, don't come for me geography history people i don't care all right i think it was it, even if it was it was probably austria Aust- no this past world war one whatever is it, anyway. is it actually austria or is it just a fake country i i, I feel like this, this is one of those like genovia true in genovia <laughs> okay there is a lieutenant Nicholas von Prayen, played by Chevalier. He meets a woman named Franzi. She's the leader of an all-female orchestra. Happened to be played by Claudette Colbert. Hey, girl, what's up? They fall in love. They're a thing. And then one day, when he is out in a parade, standing, waiting for this princess to come by, he winks across the way to his love. But the princess, Princess Anna, Princess Anna, played by Miriam Hopkins, assumes that he's like being offensive to her and with the wink, I guess. And she takes it as, like I said, as an offense, but he's like, oh no, you're so beautiful. Ha ha ha. And she's like, well, okay, so we don't start like a war. You got to marry me now. And he's like, so they get married. But at the same time, he's like, but I love Franzi, Claudette Colbert. And the whole film was basically just like, does he love this woman? Does he love this woman? Well, let's try it out with the actual princess that he married. Their songs, right? Is there songs? <laughs> you threw Here me. Jazz, jazz up your lingerie. Yeah, jazz up your lingerie. Come on. That was great. You that's can tell which part of the better of the two. Oh. But that's it. That's all I'm going to say. I didn't particularly care for this one that much this is one though that i will one day rewatch. okay i actually like the concept of it though like the whole idea of you wink at somebody across the way another woman is like what the fuck did you just do to me and it's like okay you know what for doing that fine i'm beautiful marry me okay that's a cool concept i just couldn't get into it right away which sucks for me but i definitely know that this is a future rewatch immediately situation that's how I have to say, come back to me when you're like, Christian, what are the nominations I got? Do you want to, uh, uh, I can go here, Fred, if you want me to go. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. All right, I'll dive in here. So um, I liked this movie. I, I liked both of the Lubitsch films uh, of the bunch here. Um, this one, I wasn't as taken with Chevalier uh, as, uh, as I was with um, the other film. Um, but I loved Claudette Colbert and Marion Hopkins here. I think Hopkins kind of steals all of her scenes. Um, she plays this woman who has basically no concept of the world. I also thought it was a pretty damning indictment of royalty, obviously a comedic one. But I mean, most of Europe 15 years earlier than this had monarchs in every country. And that had started to wane here, but it was not ancient history that pretty much every country in Europe had these out of touch royalty. And so I thought it was really interesting that they were kind of spoofing that um, at the time. Um, Claudette Colbert, I generally like pre-code Claudette Colbert, similar to Jeanette McDonald. 
I, I like her in It Happened One Night, but pretty much It Happened One Night and earlier is when my Claudette Colbert fandom exists. And I thought she was really fun here. Um, and I kind of loved the way that both the women were kind of pursuing Chevalier in the same way. They both were very aware of his faults, but didn't care. Um, and I loved, and this is rare for a romantic comedy, where you genuinely don't know who they're going to end up with until the end. There is a legitimate case to be made for both of these women ending up with uh, Chevalier or neither of them ending up with him. And so, yeah, and I think what I liked lo- loved about this was that you didn't know which one of them he, she, he was going to end up with or neither. It's the rare rom-com where you actually don't have a clue who um, who the, the protagonist is going to end up with. And I loved that aspect of this. And obviously another very pre-code film, um, like the whole joke about Colbert and Chevalier getting breakfast together. That was super double entendre. The jazz up your lingerie number. Everyone is very H word in this movie. To use Twitter parlance. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. In fact, I enjoyed it quite a bit more than I expected to. Um... I'm going to say the two things that Christian's going to hate me for and just get him out of the way. One, it's my preference between the two musicals, the Lubitsch musicals here. And two, I think Jazz Up Your Lingerie is better than any song in one hour with you. I was into it. Um, fun musical number. Um, and, you know, Colbert and Hopkins, they just really dive into it. I, I think they're both like really committed here, um, you know, in a fun way. Um I do agree. I, I don't think Chevalier is as good here as he was in one hour with you. Um, yeah. The two women are, are awesome. Uh, Miriam Hopkins. I'm usually not into like those performances that are like just wild and out there and so exuberant, but like with this case, I really like her in it just because I think there's such a full awareness that that's who the character is. She's going to be like that because she has no idea what the world's about and she dives in head first to it. Um and so I thought she was a lot of fun and funny. Um, I also really liked George Barbier, Barbier, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but he plays her father who is like the king. I thought he was funny too. Um, like he just, I think it's clear that like he comes off at first as this like gruff, stern guy. But then when you get into his world, you realize, no, he's kind of like his daughter. Like there's a reason that she doesn't know what the world is all about. It's because he doesn't really either. Uh, he's kind of clueless. So um, I'm usually, you know, not into, you know, the movies where it's all about two women trying to pursue the guy who's like definitely not good enough for either of them. Um, but here it is so comedic. And I also, one thing I do like about it, I think this is what makes it you know a little more pre-code is that this is not a sense. Can I spoil the ending? Are you too okay with that, with this one? I'm good with it. Okay. This, it's very big to how I you feel remember about how it, it ended? <laughs> Look, <laughs> I've decided, dear listeners, that I'm still on a little stay at home with my surgery and all. I'm going to rewatch this movie. Okay. <laughs> for you two and for our listeners out there, I'm going to rewatch this movie in the next day. All right. I found it on my little website. Well, in the next yeah. episode. Christian's personal awards will have smiling lieutenant at number one. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was changed. You both are right. But I, I really like it because, you know, Claudette Colbert is the more free spirited of the two. She's not committed to anybody. She's a musician. She kind of travels 
the world. Whereas Hopkins is, of course, lives with her dad. Um, it's not a situation where one becomes more homely, less free spirited. It's a situation where the other actually becomes more sexy and sexual. And it's not the other way around, which is normally what you would probably expect from a film from the 1930s. And so I, you know, there's still some issues with that. Obviously, you know, it, it doesn't age well, but I like that if it was going to go one of the two ways, it went that way. Um, but I also agree. I definitely did not know who he was going to end up. Yeah. It's Greece for the 1930s. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Miriam Hopkins is Olivia Newton. Yeah, absolutely. Um, though much better than Greece personally. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely did not know which way it was going to go. And even though I, I'm still not even hundred percent sure if, if I, you know, he ended up with who I wanted him to end up with, but it worked for me. I, it convinced me. So I just thought it was fun and goofy. And I think, you know, a goofy movie like this is what, you know, Marie Chevalier would probably work best with. Did someone say a goofy movie? <laughs> now there's a film I can talk about. <laughs> I think one of the striking things about this movie and a lot of the movies we talked about is how we don't have Best Supporting Actress yet. But man, that could have oh. been an interesting category. There's so many of these movies where the the best performance is a supporting actress performance. Um, and I feel like the Oscars owes it to all of the, the women of, and, and men, uh, from these years to, um, do some retroactive awards and yes. give out some supporting awards to some of these years. Um, I, uh, one question I had, and I don't have the scene, I forgot to write it down, but does Claudette Colbert do a Marlena Dietrich impersonation in a very early scene in this? She does a slight German accent and it feels like she's impersonating Marlena Dietrich, but I wasn't quite, I couldn't quite tell in that. And I, I, I got this through the, the Netflix, the, in the red envelope. Um, and so I couldn't rewatch it. Uh, but I was curious, especially considering sort of their Hollywood Babylon inter uh, legend. I thought that was interesting if she was doing a Dietrich impersonation. Christian, if on your rewatch, if you catch that, let me know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I can't recall it, but. She definitely does a German yeah. accent very early on in the film, but I couldn't tell if it's just a generic German accent or if she was clearly trying to impersonate Dietrich. I was just kind of looking at Dietrich's filmography just to... That's the other thing, too. I, like, I don't know how how big Dietrich was in America at that time. I mean, she would have just made Morocco. So she would have... Yeah. Like, it would have been a big enough... She would have been well-known enough at that point that, like, an impersonation might have shown up. Makes sense. In a film, but I, I I couldn't quite tell, and obviously that's a apocryphal sort of story in Hollywood Babylon, but it is an interesting one, and uh, it wouldn't you, you got to mention Karina Longworth at least once, and so there's an episode. <laughs> yeah. Remember this where they talk about that. And if anybody out there actually knows Karina Longworth, tell her to join us. Yeah, let her know. We will, we will move things around. She can pick her own damn year. If she picks one we've already covered, we'll go back. And I would like to just be in the corner there. I don't have to talk. I just need to observe. <laughs> like they talk about you every, like they credit you every episode. Like, come on. Oh. Karina, make it happen. I love erotic 80s. No. 
I do though. Which nobody uh, told me about. <laughs> I had to find out on my own that that was a thing. It's so good. It's so good. Such a good season. Oh, sorry for the side up. Yeah, it's so good. That's what I'm going to be doing on my little, my last week here with my hand healing. I'm going to listen yes, to that. Absolutely. And you'll, breeze, you'll breeze through it. All right. Uh, Christian, do you want to go over the huge nomination total for this one? Sure. Let me put on my glasses again. <clears throat> Nominated. Eh. Er. there you go that's how we do it in the world of education very nice can i ask before i know we've got one more left but like for these films that were only on for best picture do you think that was the right decision like do you think like the smiling lieutenant deserved i mean obviously we'll get into but like any of the tech categories i feel like this one it feels like an art direction nomination yeah art direction maybe costumes yeah Def- which definitely would, costumes yeah. yeah i think if costume had existed at the time they would have nominated it. oh that's gosh i can't i always forget which ones weren't even there yet yeah and i mean if you wanted to throw like hopkins or even colbert in lead since they didn't have supporting back then i yeah yeah i could see that but yeah two others maybe yeah yeah, I feel like, yeah, at least it just, yeah, I, I I don't, at least one or two of these, I'm like, that's, that would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. All right, well, in that case, we reach our best picture winner. Christian, you've got this one. Take us away I here. got this. Okay. Our next film has nothing but stars. Stars are ageless. <clears throat> it's Grand Hotel whoa spoiler alert winner of best picture nominated for best picture that's it that's the one thing it nominated for and the one thing it won here we go after having the house fumigated dorothy rose and blanche along with sophia take a planned trip to see a burt reynolds show in miami sophia on the other hand cannot attend but they go to the hotel anyway and they decide to visit a hotel bar this grand hotel bar before they go and unbeknownst to them it is a place of prostitution this lands the girls in jail when the police come to arrest the prostitutes in the grand hotel (laughs) that's one of my favorite episodes that's like one of the most iconic episodes it is is that what you were talking about with like we were going to be shook by what you compared this to? No. Oh, <laughs> no. I will get to that though. Okay. Thank you okay. for reminding me. Thank you for reminding me because I almost forgot. Okay. So, no, this is the real Grand Hotel. Now, bear with me here. There's some, these are very German names. Okay. A film in which Brett called those names are too German. <laughs> and there are stars in this film. Lies. Okay. Brett will be canceled by the end of this podcast. <laughs> so I'll go in. I'll go in order here of in Wikipedia terms. So Baron Felix von Gergen, see, played by John Barrymore. He is a Baron who's basically lost all of his fortune in gambling. He's also like part-time jewel thief on the side, um, but he, this is all taking place in the Grand Hotel, of course. He meets Otto Kringlein, played by Lionel Barrymore. Whoa, I just said two Barrymores. They're brothers. Movie together. Yay. Um, transitioning into Lionel Barrymore's Kringlein, who is this worker who's down his luck, but he's also very terminally ill. 
So this is really his last holiday. This is his last resort. Let's spend what I have because you can't take it with you. Um, so they meet in the Grand Hotel. Also in this Grand Hotel is General Director Precing, played by Wallace Beery. He's trying to make a business acquisition deal, um, some doings here and there. So he hires Flemchen, who is a stenographer played by Joan Crawford. She has her own ambitions, not just to be a stenographer. She wants to go to Hollywood and be in the movies. Wow, such a big thing. She's a beautiful, she's a beautiful young lady. Um, but she meets and uh, she also befriends, she befriends both the Barrymores in this case. She befriends the Baron and she really befriends uh, Kringlein in this. But in the very sort of penthouse of this lavish hotel is Grunskaya, who's a ballerina, played by the one and only Greta Garbo. She wants to be alone. Her performances aren't what they used to be. She plays to not very packed houses every night. They kind of have to convince her that, oh, the audience is packed. They're all there waiting for you. In reality, it's not what she thinks. She's a very de depressed and despondent woman until she meets the Baron. And there's an instant attraction there. It's one that we've spoken about many times on this podcast already. There's that instant attraction there where they see each other from across, across the, the way. And it's like, wow, that guy, ooh, that lady. So it's just really the comings and goings of the Grand Hotel. Or as one observer says, people coming, going, and nothing ever happens. So this is a movie that, here's my comparison of what you will be shook about when I watched this last night, I compare to Seinfeld. This is a movie about nothing. Yeah. You learn about these people's. Honestly. Yeah, I never thought about it until last night. You and I'm not getting this from anywhere but my own mind. You are learning about these people, their various problems. Um, Kringline, I Kringle, I love Kringline in this. I just love his performance. It's really sad and heartbreaking what he's all going through. But you learn about these people, you learn about their ongoings, their sufferings, their highs, their lows. But then after that, when everybody checks out at the end of their stay there, you don't really care about them again because the next set of people are going to come in and the next set of people and the next set of people. These people may fall in love in this, uh, Grunskaya and the Baron, but do you really care as much about that when I want to know about why does she want to be in Hollywood pictures? Why is he dying over here? And like, what's his, does he have more motives than just that? John is saying Grand Hotel is the, is the love boat for the 30s. Every week, it's a new set of stars. Every week, it's a new set of stars. There you go. Um, but this is an also a strange instance where I like this movie. I don't love this movie. But if you look at my personal winners, because I break up every year, I don't do the whole combination of things. So I have a separate movie for 31. This is my best picture winner, personally, of 1932. Okay? Interesting. But I don't, I don't feel like I give this movie past three and a half stars because it's nothing that I seek out. The only reason I'm seeking it out again is because for this podcast. Before then, it was a Best Picture marathon where we were trying to go in order. Before that, obviously, trying to get in Best Pictures and everything like that. The cast is stacked. If there was such a thing as an ensemble award at the Oscars, as everybody says, this would have been the great first introduction, okay? Great first introduction to the SAG. I mean, the cast is of stars. I got to watch last night one of the bonus things on the Blu-ray where the premiere of Grand Hotel, 
and it's like the mob and the crowd control of everything is incredible for these people. By the way, Marlena Dietrich, as we were talking about, she showed up to this. Greta Garbo did not show up to this at the premiere. Um, also, Norma Shear, they went oh. fucking fan- fanatical for her. She's arm in arm with Clark Gable. They're just like, oh, look, she's with Clark Gable. So it was probably one of those like, hey, go with her studio, blah, 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 mm-hmm. whatever. But anyway, the film itself, like I said, it's it's a decent film. I think it's very beautiful to look at. And that's mostly because these people are beautiful to look at. Okay. Even somebody like uh, Lionel Barrymore, who's playing Kringleine, who's a dying, supposedly older man dying. I mean, you know, he's not in the wheelchair being evil Mr. Potter by any means. Okay. These people that I care for in this moment, like in Seinfeld, I care for in this moment. But like I said, when they check out, bring in the next group. So, and Greta Garbo, she wants to be alone. Dietrich wasn't even an MGM star. I mean, that's saying how big of a deal this movie was that she even showed up when it wasn't her studio. Yes, if you have if wow. you have the Blu-ray of this, check out the world premiere or the Hollywood premiere of it because it is something because they, oh, one last thing before I leave you speak here. One last thing. At the premiere, they have the guest or the movie star sign a check-in book because they're like, welcome to the Grand Hotel. Sign in to our, you know, what you would at a hotel. I asked Toby last night, where do you think that book is? Like, is it somewhere deep in the MGM mm. vault? Was it destroyed at any point? Somewhere there is a book with all of these famous Hollywood signatures on it that showed up in 19, what, April, March, April of 1932. It said Boys Town with Spencer Tracy's Oscar. (laughs) Could you imagine? That's one of those things you don't even think about until I see this. And I'm like, what is this book? That's interesting. It's also a musical, but John will probably get into that. I will mention it, yes. Wait, I'll go next wait, on this who, one. Oh. Who has, who has seen this one before? Not me. I had. Okay. Yeah. First time watch. Uh, I'll go into next. I, I think Chris and I are probably pretty similar on thoughts, but um, yeah, the, the cast is, I know sometimes you see big casts, like big names, and sometimes it could be like, oh, they're big names, but like some of them are phoning it in. Nobody's phoning it in here. Like they're big names and they do a really good job. Um, So for me, yes, the cast and the performances are undoubtedly the strength of the movie. Um, I mean, truly of the, of the big names, not a single one that I would heavily criticize at all. Um, My favorite was probably Lionel Barrymore. I mean, as someone who like, isn't really into actors hamming it up every time he hams it up, I'm down for it. Like, it's just, I enjoy it. Um, I also just thought his character was probably the most interesting to me. Like this, this thought of this guy showing up to live in this hotel for the last few weeks of his life, but they're all really good. I I really like Joan Crawford too. She was probably my number two. And I just thought she was, she was interesting because, um, yeah, at this point she probably wasn't quite the star that some of the others were yet. Um, but she shows up, holds her own. And I really liked her character too. Um, one of my big complaints, not enough Garbo. Um, I, I think there's a, a decent amount of her here. It's not like she's like doing cameos or something, but she has these long periods where she's gone and she comes back in and the plot kind of has her does the same, do the same thing over and over, which she does really well because she's Greta Garbo. But 
I thought her character could have been given a little more, especially just because like as great as all these people are, it's like a Garbo film in the early thirties. Like I'm showing up to watch that, you know? Um, yeah, I, it is kind of like a day in the life movie of this hotel. I, the Seinfeld connection makes total sense. Um, that's a good call that I would not have ever considered. Um, and I, day in the life type stuff that isn't really about anything for me, I like those type of movies, but to make me love them, the dialogue has to be like really good. And I do like the dialogue here. I don't love it. It doesn't do enough to like, leave me like all of a sudden caring deeply about these characters. I like them, but by the end, I'm still not sure why I should care. Um, and maybe part of that is kind of the point, but it just doesn't give me the same enjoyment of if I wish I could care about these characters more and know why to care about them more. Um, that said, the line you mentioned, Grand Hotel, always the same. People come, people go, nothing ever happens. Fantastic line to end the movie. Um, I mean, that and begin it too. Like it's it's just perfect for the movie that is presented here. Um, so yeah, obviously there's a point where like all the stories start to like intersect as often happens in these ensemble movies with the different characters. And for me, it, it wasn't as thrilling as it typically can be. But like I said, when you're watching these characters and the performances are this committed and this good, how do you not enjoy it? I mean, to me, it's kind of like, it's like good old Hollywood fun, classic Hollywood fun. I could see why Hollywood would love this movie. I could see why the Oscars would have loved this movie, even though that's the only award they gave it. You know, I, on one hand, it makes no sense that they gave it just best picture. On the other hand, I can see it. You know, if that's the one that's on the ballot, I could see why everybody would go and vote for that. So, um, yeah, I'm on, the, I'm a similar boat to Christian. I like it. Um, definitely don't love it. This is probably my smiling Lieutenant where I'd, I'd want to watch it again, just see how I feel differently about it. But it's fun for what it is. So similar to Christian, um, I um, have seen, this is my third time visiting Grand Hotel. And um, I, I liked it. I, I continued every time. I always kind of forget how much I enjoyed this movie. Um, it's not quite as good as Dinner at Eight, which was sort of the spiritual follow-up to this movie. But I think it's like comparing Diamonds and Rubies at that point. I, I enjoy both of those movies immensely. Um, what struck me most this time was um, not only how everyone in the film feels not only lost, but also are kind of spoofing a version of themselves in real life, or at least their star persona. And coming from MGM, where which sort of invented the star persona, um, I thought that was really fascinating. You've got John Barrymore playing a man driven to the brink by his own demons, which is basically the story of John Barrymore's life. Garbo is clearly meant to be this unknowable, untouchable goddess. Um, Crawford is playing someone who's trying not to be just a pretty face, which again would be the story of John, Joan Crawford's career. It's it's a weird sort of meld of how much of this was real, how much of this was MGM being manufacturing it, and how much of it was the screenwriters understanding these stars in that way. Um, I think there's sort of a meta factor in Grand Hotel that I found really interesting watching it now. Um, of the cast, I actually like Crawford the best of this. I think it's really fascinating to see she's so resigned to men looking at her as a means to an end that she can't see a life 
for herself beyond it and how refreshing it is when she meets a man who doesn't see her that way. And I thought that was really an extraordinary moment for her as she sort of, I mean, right at this point, um, I can't, Christian, I think you said that, or I can't remember which, if it was you or Brett who pointed out that this was at the beginning of Crawford's career. She wasn't really a star quite yet. And um, this is sort of her playing into that. Um, John Barrymore, in my opinion, never got his credit as an actor. He did this, Dinner at Eight and 20th Century, back to back to back, no Oscar nominations. That feels wrong. Um, the pre-code aspect of this, there's some really solid quips. Um, I'd like to, you to take some dictation is probably the sauciest of the bunch. Um, but uh, it's I like the Gilded Eight set design. And I I'm, think the biggest shock for me is that this received no acting nominations. Um, the, it was made into a musical in the 90s, early 90s. In the musical version, the characters played by Garbo, Crawford, and both the Barrymores were nominated. And Lionel Barrymore, the, the character, Michael Jeter, Jeter, who plays um, Lionel Barrymore's character in the musical, um, won the Tony. And honestly, one of the best Tony performances ever. Oh my gosh, he's so good. Yeah, that foot—that's that—that footwork in there, that choreography. I saw that. Okay, we're veering off here, but whatever. That I saw that on like Broadway's Lost Treasures, one of those DVDs. I don't know if anybody's familiar with those. That's when I was first introduced to that performance, and I love that performance so much. If you haven't seen it, Brett, you have to check it out. It's it's basically, he looks like a rag doll. He's, the way that he's dancing, it's just incredible. That's interesting. Like that whole, and that whole performance too. And then his follow-up when he actually wins featured actor in a musical where he tells the world, like, I am an alcoholic and stuff. It just mm-hmm. makes it even more layered because you, you know this character is like a down on his luck, a little guy. He's a little down on his luck guy. And also going back to Lionel Barrymore's performance in this, I think that's why this performance of his is one of my, if like I could make a top 100, it's in the top 100 performances. Mm. And I don't know if I'm, I mean, I, cause I know people who have done this before where they only like one performance per actor and stuff, but whatever, I'll double it up because he has this, he has Mr. Potter, obviously later on in his life, which is like the quintessential villain. Yeah. But it's like to see going from this to even um, you can't take it with you as grandpa there. And then mm-hmm. later on, it's all life. Yeah, it's been fascinating for me the last two episodes, because like my my thought of Lionel Barrymore, like the, the role I always go back to, of course, is Mr. Potter. Like first thing I saw him in, it's so iconic. I think of him as this nasty villain and then watching first, you can't take it with you where he is just so lovable, so sweet. Same thing here, uh, the range, like he's so good at such different roles. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to witness. And also to see um, Joan Crawford too, because yeah, th- I mean, she made, it looks, I'm on the IMDb page of her. She made a bajillion and a half movies before this, but honestly, then you get to this and, and then she's pretty much set, mm-hmm. you know, but, but if you hit- there was a scene with her and Garbo. Like, that's what's missing from this. Oh, audience. yeah. Yeah. You can read and to read the fun facts of her interactions with Garbo. And it's that's another interesting thing. It's none of these major characters are in the same room together at the same exact time. Didn't she like worship Garbo in real life? She was just like enamored with her in real life. Yes. Actually, let me find. Okay. Understandable. Find 
one of the fun facts on this. While you're looking for that, what do you think in a different era, who would go supporting and who would go lead in this? Garbo and John Barrymore for me are lead and everybody else is supporting. And I agreed and I texted Christian this, but I was like, I am afraid to put Joan Crawford in supporting because I feel like she will come back from the dead and haunt me if I like put her in supporting while Garbo gets to be lead. I actually just texted Chris about this earlier too. Why are you all asking me? You're, I, the, you're the arbiter of- You're very of definitive with your opinions. And like, I you know, am. This is especially with categories. So that's me. I, that's me pointing out. If you go to my letterbox page, you can see all my personal best whatever wins yeah, because yeah. I do have some ensemble members from Grand Hotel in many of these. I- I think John, I would probably put John Barrymore lead. I have trouble seeing Garbo as lead. Like I said, maybe I'm just diving too much into all the time where it seems like she disappears from the movie. So I understand the argument. I would would probably consider her more supporting. But John Barrymore, like, it seems like he does feel like the most involved. Like he's involved in everything that's going on in the hotel. It comes back to him in some way. So I think he's definitely lead. Yeah, for sure. Can I read my little fun fact here? Go for yes. it. Okay, so Joan Crawford, yes, she was starstruck by Greta Garbo. Though they had no scenes together, Crawford would greet the enigmatic, eh, that's the word, teacher here, enigmatic star with reverence whenever the two passed each other between the camera setups. Garbo, though, never responded. So Crawford ceased her efforts to engage her. Sometime later, Garbo stopped Crawford as she walked silently past her, remarking, aren't you going to say something to me? There you go. But honestly, they don't share a scene together. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So talking about nominations, I because I agree, I'm surprised this didn't get any acting just because, I mean, it's weird to think now about like lead and supporting splits, but I don't I don't know how much they would have even cared about that in, in 31, 32, even though there was no supporting categories. Like, I think they would have made room for one of these in the two right. categories they had. The other one I'm a little bit surprised about is best adaptation. Just because the film is so, I mean, a lot of these films are going to be dialogue heavy, but this one, the dialogue feels so especially important and especially in establishing the characters. And, you know, the nominees were Bad Girl, um, Aerosmith, which is like awful, but I'm guessing it's because Sinclair Lewis, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, that kind of makes sense based on a famous book, but the original Screenplay category had four. So like, why not throw Grand Hotel in there? I, I know that's not how it works, but it's a little bit weird to me that it didn't get a screenplay nomination as well. All right. Well, that is our take on the one film to win Best Picture without being nominated for anything else. And like we said, I, I don't think it'll happen again. Any final thoughts on Grand Hotel? It's decent. It is a weird, it is a weird movie where I'm like, it's decent. And yet it's my best picture winner of 32 if we were dividing the years. So I liked it better than decent, but yes, (laughs) I I will sit here and defend Grand Hotel. (laughs) All right. Well, now let's go ahead and jump into our ranking of these eight films. 
So really interested to see some of the differences here. I will go ahead and kick us off. Um, so at number eight, no surprise, I have Aerosmith. Honestly, the only film that I straight up disliked. I liked all the others. Um, so number seven, I have Five Star Final. Number six, One Hour With You. Number five, Grand Hotel. Number four, Shanghai Express. Number three, The Smiling Lieutenant. Number two, Bad Girl. And number one, no surprise, is The Champ. John, let's hear from you. All right. So my number eight is Bad Girl, number seven, Aerosmith, six, Five Star Final, five, The Champ, four, The Smiling Lieutenant, three, One Hour With You, two, Shanghai Express, and I will stick with uh, number one, Grand Hotel for Best Picture. All right. Don't forget, I have to rewatch The Smiling Lieutenant. (laughs) My number eight, though, is Aerosmith. Okay, I I couldn't I, I couldn't stay away in this sweet surrender with it trying to think back on that dance that's the only song i know of them isn't that sad um okay number seven the smiling lieutenant bad girl number six number five five star final number four one hour with you number three shanghai express i thought about this i thought about this but number two is grand hotel and number one is the champ for me all right So that brings us to our overall average rating that Toby always calculates for us. No ties this time. At number eight, we have Aerosmith. Number seven, five-star final. Number six, bad girl. Probably would have been seven if not for me. Uh, Number five, the smiling lieutenants. Number four, one hour with you. Number three, Shanghai Express. Number two, Grand Hotel. And number one would be the champ. So, uh, two of us would say the Academy should have gone with another film, but John is going to defend Grand Hotel. They got it right. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, it is very proud of me. Still very high on our overall ranking and still definitely a good movie worth checking out. All right. Well, those that's what we think of the nominees. As always, be sure to tune in next time because we will be talking about four other films um, that we we picked we actually picked one each and then twitter is going to decide the fourth for us we do not know the results of that right now so as of this recording we don't know what our fourth film is that's exciting um but we will discuss those don't i always win that or have i won the majority of those i won last time yeah john won Um, last time yeah but i'm not winning so far in the poll at at this juncture but keep voting your vote matters (laughs) yes christian you do you do win most of the time for sure I pick winners, baby. Somebody throw bread a bone this time. All right. Well, um, yes, be sure to tune in there. We'll have our personal awards like always. Those are always so much fun. Um, and yeah, John, thanks for coming on with us this time and for coming back next time. Any final thoughts from you? Um, no. Um, I Watch Grand Hotel. Join me on this side. And um, <laughs> I don't know when this will be published, so I'm guessing it will be done with June, but um, my blog, uh, The Mini Rantings of John, just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. We are celebrating all month, so if you have not, I mean, the articles will still be there, even if it's not June anymore, so come and check it out, and um, we talk a lot about um, old movies. Absolutely. Go check that out. Congratulations. That is an impressive feat. 3,500 articles all written by me in 10 years. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Christian, any final thoughts from you? I have none. 
except I had hand surgery. So I'm not at the moment writing a lot of things. That's about it. All right. Well, be sure to tune in next time and we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thank you.